From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Pamela Paul. Pamela recently left her role as the editor of the New York Times Book Review to become an opinion columnist at The Times. She's the author of eight books, including her latest, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Now, this book really impacted me because, like so many, I've gained so much from the internet, including the ability to connect with my parents in Australia over a two-year pandemic. And that was unthinkable just 10 or 15 years ago. That said, I have the tendency to let the internet dominate most of my time. Now, this conversation with Pamela and her book reminded me that I need to reclaim my time and my attention. I hope it inspires you to do the same. Enjoy this conversation. So here we go. I have Pamela Paul on Lit Up and Pamela's voice is probably one of the most well-known voices in the book world because she has been hosting the New York Times Book Review podcast for many, many years. Pamela, well, first, hello and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you started that podcast at the Times, is that right? I actually did not. So the Book Review podcast is the oldest and longest running podcast at the Times. It used to be called Inside the New York Times Book Review, and it was begun 16 years ago by Sam Tannenhaus with Dwight Garner. It's definitely changed over the years, but I have hosted it for the last nine years. So it feels like forever to me, but it had this long life before I came on board. And in fact, when I started, you know, people who had been longtime listeners were were pretty stunned and taken aback and some very disappointed um, because Sam was a really great host and had been doing it every week um, for six years at that point. It's kind of a great segue because I think change is always jarring for people, especially if they've had a relationship with that voice that they've loved. But the book that you've written most recently, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet, is all about change. Can you tell us about how boredom played a role in that? Oh, yeah. Well, boredom was a key part um, because... I started off this book with an op-ed for The Times um, that in my mind, while I was working on it, was called The Lost Art of Boredom. I think the title that it was published with was Let Children Get Bored Again, um, which, you know, maybe was a better headline because it it did very well and and became the basis for this book, which is 100 short chapters of each kind of documenting something that existed in the before times, but that the internet has either obliterated or just shoved out of the way or changed, um, transformed sort of so radically that it whatever it was is is no longer recognizably the same thing that it was before the internet. So it started with boredom. And that essay began with my walk to the train station every day back in the before times when we commuted every day. And I realized that I was not using 
that time. It was like a 12-minute walk, but I wasn't using it. Um, I would just sort of stare at the trees. And I had that feeling, that impulse that we have all the time, which is like, you got to be busy. You have to optimize every moment. And I realized like I have this thing in my hand. We call it a phone. It's really a portable internet. And I could be using it during this time. So um, what I what I had been doing, I have to admit, I, I wasn't always staring at the trees. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't that disciplined. I had been texting while walking and I which is dangerous and, and terrible and I do it anyway but I realized like you know I could do more during this time I could put on a, a set of headphones and I could be listening to a podcast or catching up on an audiobook um, I could read the morning newsletter um, for the New York Times like I could do a lot with this time. And it was that impulse to optimize space that used to be empty, space that I think we all used to have in the kind of, you know, at various intervals during the day that we no longer do because we have this portable internet in our hands that means that at any given downtime, we can get information, be entertained, um, you know, just absorb various feedback from, you know, the outside world, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or email or texts. And I realized that I had essentially fallen into a life in which there was no downtime. There was no time where I wasn't getting input. And what you lose when you don't have any input are those empty moments where you can generate output, right? Like if you don't, if you're constantly reacting to things, then you aren't actually coming up with anything original. You're just kind of, it's like whack-a-mole. You're just like, you know, answer that text, notice that notification, see that thumb, you know, that that vote up, um, see that this person favorited that thing, notice this person is angry, and you're not actually sort of just sitting with your own thoughts um, and, and coming up with new ideas. So all of that ended up in this one op-ed. And I realized that I had like a million of these things, these things that we have kind of forgotten existed, but that were once omnipresent in our lives before the internet. Um, so that was the, the very basic genesis of the book. Do you mention how we all feel we have to optimize our lives? And I even had that moment this morning, you know, your book was swirling around in my head and I looked around at everyone on the subway because I did commute today and I saw us all reading the New York Times updates, you know, whereas before we used to try to avoid eye contact on the subway. Um, right. But at least it was time to muse and think. And I just remember a childhood without the internet, you know, remembering when your parents said, what's that line? Only a boring person gets bored. You know, That's go right. Off. That's right. Go off and work it out, kid. And that kind of self-soothing that happened and then the re the book you would find as a kid or the drawing you would start or the imaginary world you would start to inhabit and I figured that you know as adults we need that boredom just as much as kids do and I just love that that was one of the very first things that you highlighted in the book you know it's interesting that one of the only times 
we get that now, unless you're far more disciplined and Zen than I am, is in the shower. Or conversely, when you're trying to fall asleep and suddenly all of the input stops, right? And for me, actually, my husband just got me a pen that lights up at night because I have a notebook by my bed. I'm constantly jotting down ideas when I'm trying to fall asleep. And it really is, I think, because that's the only time that I'm sort of have those those empty moments, that moment to be bored. Of course, then I don't really sleep, which is another thing that we've lost to the internet, a, a good night's sleep. Um, and then, you know, in the shower, I'm like rushing out to try to get to a pen and piece of paper or, you know, of course, my laptop so that I can jot something down. As you were coming on, you mentioned that you've had a huge life change just recently, having been, I would say, really the most powerful person in the book world, arguably in the world, with just such a huge reach of planning all the book's coverage in the New York Times. How has the last few weeks been with that transition? And with that, do you have those expanses of time? <laughs> it's a little too soon to tell. So I um, was at the New York Times Book Review for 11 years, nine as the editor, um, and five as running the desk um, as a sort of larger enterprise, including the daily reviews and, and news and features. And I want to say, it's funny that you described it as being the most powerful person. I feel like it's the institution that's powerful, and I just happen to be the person overseeing it. Um, but I I never felt that sort of sense of personal power so much as I felt like the institutional power. Because, um, of course, I, for the most part, was not making the decision of let's review this book or let's review that book, nor was I weighing in on those books. I kind of stepped back and, and let my very talented staff do that. And um, so in a way, it, 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 I mean, part of it is, is very freeing, I have to say, because now I can really say if I like a book or or I don't like a book. But it's only been a week. I, I'm sure I will go through, you know, various stages of grief of mm. the things that I will miss. Um, from uh, working on books at the New York Times. Um, and it does feel very, very strange because it's different from vacation. You know, in vacation, um, as a journalist, you're never really on vacation because uh, there's always news happening. Um, you know, things that will occur unexpected, a great author will die or something will break out in the news or there's something, you know, that uh, needs a correction. So you're never really off. This is the first time I have been kind of off in any way, shape, or form since I was, you know, 26 years old. Well, I'm excited for you, but I know that there's sometimes an adrenaline, you know, the highs and lows that come with any huge shift. To go backwards, I heard you talk about taking a gap year and this idea that you felt that you were going to be late for the life's milestones that your fellow friends who were going off to college were going to be starting a year earlier. And something about that story resonated with me so much about feeling like we have to catch up in life? Well, okay, I went to college very much like making a beeline um, from, you know, very uh, ambitious, studious person uh, directly into school. And I thought that my life would follow this very um, clear trajectory. I went to school thinking, 
what I really wanted to be was a writer, and that was just too scary. So I, I think I put that in a couple of, you know, essays for various scholarships and things that I applied for, but I never said it out loud to anyone. Um, and it just didn't seem like a financially secure thing to do. Um so I thought I would do something related, which would be publishing or advertising, because my mother had been an advertising copywriter, and her job just seemed enormously fun. She entered uh, the New York City um, world of advertising the same year that um, uh, the uh, Peggy character did in Mad Men, you know, I think it was like 1962. And she would come home and have to write um, these sort of slogans for things like Chiquita Banana. And she would just very quippy, it'd be like, it's Banana Appeal. And, you know, all these, these, these fun puns. And I thought I could do that. I could do that. That's kind of writing. Um, I mean, it is writing um, or publishing. However, um, when I got to the graduation and there were places coming onto campus and recruiting and there were sort of job openings. And mm -hmm. I had a kind of epiphany slash break during an interview. Um, and, you know, it was there was this moment where I felt like I saw myself the sort of bird's eye view. So I was in a job interview. Um, it wasn't quite advertising. It wasn't quite publishing. It was like sort of in-house marketing for Quaker Oats. But I thought it was, well, it's kind of close enough and it would be in Chicago, which was a fun city. Um, but I realized I did not have an answer and I really did not want to sell as much as I enjoy eating them and, and do to this day sugary cereals. I felt like that was not why I had gone to college for four years and, you know, taken out loans and, and, and worked so hard. Um, I just felt like, really, was that the point of all this? Um, so I had this moment where I thought maybe I have been looking at a really limited slate of choices. That was a mistake, that that would be a terrible mistake. You know, in a way, it was like thinking about um, the heroine in a novel, you know, who, who marries the first person that she, you know, sets her sights on or who asks her to marry him. So I thought, let me go somewhere that I know nothing about where everything is different and will be a challenge to everything I've known before. So I decided I would go somewhere where there was a different religion, a different ethnicity, a different, um, uh, you know, just totally different way of life that I wouldn't go to a big international city because growing up in New York, like if I went to Tokyo, you know, that would just be too similar. I ended up picking um, what was then a small town of 100,000 people in northern Thailand. And I bought a one-way ticket and I went and I, I didn't have a job and I didn't know anyone there and I didn't speak the language and I had no contacts whatsoever. Um, and there was no internet, you know? So, I mean, one way in which it relates to this book is that that kind of experience, which ended up being really formative for me in many, many ways, is impossible to recapture now. Like, even if you said, okay, I won't bring a phone you know that there are internet cafes nearby. You know that there's going to be the internet at wherever you're going to work. You do have the internet. And even if you don't use the internet, you're making a conscious choice not to. And that's a little bit different from actually not having the choice. So I actually did not have the choice to contact anyone. I didn't even have a landline. Um, so it wasn't an option. Um to be well, connected. That relates to one of your, I love one of those points that, uh, and it is solo travel. 
And yes, we can go alone now, but as you mentioned, we have so much at our fingertips. And I think it also relates to getting lost because I can imagine that that happened a lot on that trip, even, you know, metaphorically and how getting lost in a foreign place alone can lead to such wonder and spontaneity, which I think is part of what we've lost to the internet too. Yeah. I mean, I think about times when, so I was living in Thailand, but I did travel quite a bit on my own. I spent six weeks traveling by myself in in China, mostly in Xinjiang province and in the West, and then a month in Vietnam. I mean, in Vietnam, for example, um, I went there in 1994 in April. It was shortly after the U.S. lifted the embargo. I traveled from you know, south to north. When I got to Hanoi, I was out of money. And so I looked up the Citibank branch. And it was like um, a room in like a very desolate sort of office block. Um, and, you know, I sort of knocked on the door and the person, you know, answered and, and, and said like that it was Citibank. And I was like, yeah, but where's the ATM? And he's like, oh, no. It was like one guy sitting at like a computer um, and a desk. He, they didn't have an ATM. I actually ran out of money and that and, and, and there was no way to get it. Um, I, I had to... I actually had to ask someone, a stranger in a cafe, if he would loan me money and that my mother would mail him a check. Um, so that was the before times. It wouldn't happen now. I was just thinking, it was reminding me, I came on exchange to the US, which started my kind of American love affair and no cell phone, arrived upstate at Cornell to, a, to go live in this certain house and walked in and just knew I couldn't stay there. It almost seemed abandoned, like I'd been taken for a Craigslist ride, you know, from Australia. And having to go to the ice cream shop and ask that woman um, for help. And I ended up going home with her and her boyfriend that night and staying at their house because I didn't know where else to go. I couldn't contact anyone. And kind of life-changing in that way. And I didn't run out of money, but I, it was that moment where we co I couldn't contact anyone that I knew. And you have to make some decisions, but how that can really then change your life. Right. Um, I mean, it in every respect. Like, and, and, and there are so many ways to get out of that situation now with the internet. You know, I mean, obviously texting mom, um, but even just there, there's there's always a solution online. There's always a chat room. There's always someone to contact, or ask for advice or to say, like, you know, do you know anyone here? And you just don't have that anymore. Yeah. And I, it's not like you don't think the Internet is incredible. And I think I was relating it to myself. I'm like, I've been able to FaceTime with my mom and dad through a pandemic and what the, what a gift uh, that is. Um, so it's not like I would give up the internet, but it is about try, trying to protect some parts of our lives or bring these parts back that are still really precious. I thought we might do like a, a round of, I wrote out my favorite elements that you had written about in the book. And I thought I might just give you some of those and you can pick one to talk about. So to start off with, okay, a cluster of things I loved. One was ignoring people, passing notes, and civility. And maybe they relate to one another, but I'm not quite sure. Is there one in there that is speaking to you today? 
Wow. Um, you know, it's interesting. Ignoring people and civility yeah. are probably mostly they're very they're closely related um, in that. They, prob- they both have social media as a very definite component. Um, note passing is um, – let me talk about note passing because I have kept all my notes from um, elementary school, junior high school, a little bit in high school, and they're filed in like a um, one of those brown accordion files, you know, that you have like the string yes. that you do in a figure eight to close it. And I'll just relay one story that happened that I just thought was, was really amazing to me. I had passed a note to my friend uh, Erica in seventh grade um, in which I had drawn caricatures of the four teachers who uh, taught us at that time math, science, social studies, and English. And I, when I was in the early parts of researching this book, I took a photo of it and it was on my phone. And I was at my hometown library giving a talk about uh, for a previous book um, called How to Raise a Reader. And two of my good friends from seventh grade were there. Uh, they actually live in, in my hometown. So after the talk, I, um, I, some, a, a man who I didn't recognize approached me from the audience and he said, hey, you know, I'm Mr. Bracken. Remember me? And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> I, I don't recognize him at all. But of course, I remember him. Absolutely. I remember things he taught. I remember, you know, um, we read 1984 that year. It was in 1984 to date myself precisely. But I realized that he was doodled in this. He was featured in this note that I'd passed and I had it on my phone. So I went to my friend Sarah and Annie from seventh grade who were in the audience. And I said, this is completely crazy, but I actually have this doodle of Mr. Bracken. And I showed it to them. I'm like, do you think I should show it to him? And they're like, yes, you absolutely should. I'm like, well, what if he's offended? Because, you know, they were not super flattering shots. Um, but I I just decided, you know what, you, you, you get these moments very rarely. So I said, I, I went back to Mr. Bracken. I said, you know, it's really crazy, but I have this doodle of this note that I passed in seventh grade on my phone. And I showed it to him. And he was so delighted. And it turned out that he was in touch with Miss Lobel, who I think was the math teacher. And he said, can I screenshot this and text it to Miss Lobel? And I was like, by all means. Um, so it's funny because it was a kind of meld of, of new technology, right? I had it screenshot on my phone, but it was from this old technology of passing notes. And to go back to something you just said earlier about there being very positive things with regard to the internet. I mean, I felt that 100% while working on this book because I started it before the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and I got worried because I thought, here I am um, talking about all these things we've lost to the internet. Now everybody is so happy to have the internet, including me, right? Like this enables me to work. It enables me to um, to continue to do my podcast. It I can see my colleagues. I can be in touch with friends and family. So there were so many good things to the internet. Then, of course, as the pandemic wore on, we got this really interesting view into what happens, like especially during lockdown, when our lives become almost entirely on the internet. And then I realized, wow, it really is proving the points of this book, um, because we all sort of saw things that you lost when, for example, a kindergarten class went from being in a physical space with lots of children and a real live teacher to being, you know, a Zoom. I think the modern dilemma for us is 
is this balance, isn't it, of how to use technology to our advantage but not lose our humanity in the process. Yeah, I mean, I think that two things. One is when I was working on the book, I tried to bear in mind the fact that, you know, each of these things we've lost and or gained is not the same thing for every person. And they're not even the same thing for a single person at every moment in time. So going back to something you mentioned earlier, ignoring people um, or a related one being the only one. Um, being the only one is one of the lost things, right? Because you know at any time that like, oh, you're not the only one who has this amazing collection of, you know, I don't know, vintage Dion von Furstenberg wrap dresses, right? If you go online, you'll find there are a zillion people who have those collections. Their collections are bigger than yours. They're better than yours. They've been doing it longer. They have this incredible Pinterest or whatever. And like, you are just an amateur so you're not the only one. And that can be negative, right? But then there is a very positive side to not being the only one. Like, let's say you are dealing with the early death of your romantic partner, or you have just been diagnosed with a rare autoimmune you know, disorder, or you have a child who's going through a difficult phase. You can find people online at any given moment that are going through exactly the same thing and have that sense of, of community and, and, and be able to vent and get information and, and just feel like you're not the only one, right? So it it's different for all people. And the other thing is that we have a choice, right, about what we lose a lot of the time. And we forget that we do because I think the tech industry, big tech, has been extraordinarily clever and effective in the way that they market things to us. We think of the internet as an inevitable part of the way we live now. But really, if you break it down, it's products and services, just like anything else, just like a new skin cream, just like um, a you know, new set of utensils um, or, um, or even a piece of hardware like a new laptop. You can choose whether to buy it or not. And we can similarly choose whether to use these products and services. And we sometimes don't think about them as consumer choices and of being skeptical consumers because a lot of the times the products and the apps and the services and the upgrades are free. But they're not mm. really free, right? We all know now, well, they might be quote unquote free, uh, but there's a cost. And I just don't think that we pause and think about the fact that we're in control. The message with tech is use this or you are blinding yourself to the future. You're a Luddite. You are, um, you know, incapable of change. You're going to get left behind. And those messages are very, very effective. Um, and so we end up internalizing really what is the marketing message that's been sold to us that like we are somehow lesser beings if we don't use the latest, you know, technology. Yeah, I think that being left behind is such a strong through line, isn't it? Because none of us inherently want to be left behind. We didn't want to be left behind by our friends in middle school if they were even running to that side of the playground. Like it's such a human want to to be with with the group. Um this is a bit of a, a, a segue, but because um, this is going to be a Pamela Paul mashup because you've written so many books and there's so much in your brain I want to talk about. But you wrote a book 
also called How to Raise a Reader. And I'm wondering if for the parents listening, uh, you could share a couple of points, but just to that end of like, how do we get, whether it's, um, you know, kids to engage online or not, but we don't want kids ever to be left behind of like their ability to read, but then how do we develop that love in a child of reading? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of common ground between this book and that book. Um, mm. One of the ways that we fear getting left behind is as parents, we fear our children being left behind. And I think that yeah. that has led to schools really selling out to big tech. I mean, literally selling our children and their education and their futures to technology companies in so many ways um, yeah. under the guise of, you know, if you don't adopt these Chromebooks or this technology or this Google Classroom, your child will um, not learn 21st century skills. Um, mm -hmm. And essentially what they're doing is they are luring in consumers from a very early age, building brand loyalty, gathering data and information on those consumers, um, and uh, moving merrily along their way towards greater profits. So um, the way in which this operates in terms of reading is that one of the points I tried to make in that book is that you are never going to create a lifelong reader um, if you force someone to read um, or if you incentivize them to read in any way. Um, there's a lot of research about the virtues of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. You need to figure out how to get your child to want to read on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of parents think like, well, what about or schools like giving them a dollar for every book they read or um, saying, if you read this book, you can play on the iPad. Um, essentially, what that does is it turns reading into a means to get something else. It mm -hmm. doesn't get a kid to actually want to read on their own. And where this becomes important is that at a certain point in time, whether it's when your kid is a tween or a teenager, or even maybe when they leave the house, um, they're going to be choosing their own way to spend their time. And they have a lot of other options, many of them online to choose from. And unless they really want to read, they're not going to do it. They're going to go online. They're going to watch Hulu. They're going to play, you know, video games. They're going to be on social media. Like there's just a ton of other things. So it's about creating a love of reading. Um, and that's what we tried to focus on for the most part in the book. I just think of my childhood. I was an avid reader and that was the pleasure, wasn't it? To, yeah. to, to get lost in the story yeah, you, you do your chores so you could go read That's Sweet right. Valley High. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and I think you know we've sort of forgotten that. And there there is another challenge there too, which is that um, to really immerse yourself in reading, you do need to shut everything else out. And if your child has the internet right there, um, that's a distraction. I think all of us know. If you take a book into a room and leave your phone and your laptop and your iPad and whatever else in another room, you read much better than if your phone is sitting there by your side, even if it's face down, because you're like, oh, wait, I'll just take a little teeny peek and see if there are any notifications there. Um, I'll just, you know, make sure that no one is trying to reach me. And it's distracting. It pulls you out of that narrative. And I think what's the challenge is for parents and for kids is to figure out how to 
um, develop that prolonged sense, that prolonged ability to pay attention, to immerse yourself so that they can even develop that, you know, have those experiences and develop that love for that, you know, just getting lost in a book. I find that as an adult now, as someone who already loves reading, that I have to create a space, you know, without the phone. Like you said, sometimes it, the brain can feel so distracted that it's a challenge even for us who know as soon as we do it, it'll help calm us yeah. and make our lives better. So I can only imagine what it's like for kids I used to um, yeah. live in a five-story house, and I would leave my phone on the top floor and then go all the way down to the bottom of the floor with my book, just making it as difficult as possible. Now I need to ask you about My Life with Bob, your book of books, because I couldn't have you on uh, with all your knowledge and having read so much without, A, asking you how you think this book of books is going to change now that you have a little more free reign over your own reading life. But firstly, could you explain what that book is to people who might not have heard about it? So um, BOB stands for Book of Books, and it is a journal that I've been keeping since I was 17 years old. I still have the original book. It's very worn out at this point. Um, I write down every book that I've read. Um, I don't write anything about the book. I do have a, some little... Uh, notations in it, like an empty square next to the title, if I didn't finish the book for any reason. For the most part, I'm very completist and, and task-oriented, and I like to finish. But weirdly, um, it's not about the numbers. I'm a very slow reader, and for a long time, I didn't even write the numbers down until like, I had a boyfriend in my 30s who said, you know, how is that? What number are you on? I don't know. It just made me feel bad about the whole thing, and I went back, and I, and I numbered them. And then the crazy thing is, even since then, I have really terrible handwriting, and I will sometimes make a mistake. And so I'll be like, you know, 1,500, and then like a few lines later, it'll go back to 1,300. And then I'll carry on for like, you know, another 100 before I realize like, wait a minute, I was already <laughs> beyond this. So the numbers are really all jumbled up. Um, but when I finish a book, I enter it into my Bob. And this has really been like the longest relationship of any kind I've had with any journal or diary. Um, I'm, I'm really very bad, actually, at keeping diaries. And to my mind, it tells the story of my life better than any diary could. So I want to ask one last question, and maybe we'll have you on again in six months when you've kind of, um, you know, changed in terms of you've just let things settle after the job, because I want to talk to you about a hundred more I'll things. become like a TV person. Um, I, no. <laughs> that's it. I want you to be our books commentator. So let's plan on that so people, you know, won't be upset. But my last question for you is what lights you up? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess I should have expected this question with the name Lit Up. Um, what lights me up? Well, I'll answer it with regard to books. What lights me up in a book is being transported to not just another place or another world, but another person's mind and way of thinking. Um, some people like to see themselves reflected in a book. I kind of like the opposite. I like to inhabit a world, a time, a place, a situation, a point of view that I don't um, 
get to experience directly in my own life. It's 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 a way I think of not just time travel, but of of being another person. It's what I imagine you know actors maybe really enjoy from their art, um, which is you get to see the world through someone else's eyes, and I just find that to be almost a form of magic. Oh, and when they do it well, it's like a mind meld, isn't it? It's so lovely to lose. Well, the best books are we lose ourselves to them, right. but well, that's we... that's that that phrase to lose yourself in a book. It's exactly that. If you lose yourself, right? You lose yourself and you go because you've into entered into somewhere another. else. Yeah, yeah, someone else. Oh well, I think from this conversation, we'll just have to book in for a few months time and check in to see what you've been reading. Um, I also would love to, at that point, reflect on how, what your experiences were at the times in the various iterations of your job, but I can't thank you um, enough for your time. What a pleasure. Uh, well, a total pleasure for me too, and I'll be happy to be back um, because I will miss my podcast very much. So it'll be nice to talk oh, about books def- on another podcast. Absolutely. Lovely. Well, Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. In two weeks, we'll be back with Clemency Burton-Hill. See you then. <laughs>